We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Funny Lyndon Johnson should mention dignity of man. Working and feeling proud of your work and getting compensated for it fairly and being with uh, your fellow workers is something that uh, we do value. You know, a nice-sounding phrase is right to work. Who could be against that, right to work? But what is right to work, really? With the surprising victory of Trumpism and the takeover by Republicans of state houses across the country, uh, is right to work an idea whose time has finally come? What might its implementation mean for working Americans? As we face the new realities of 2017, how important is it for us to put right-to-work laws into historical context? And what might the road ahead look like if we want to preserve the rights of organized labor? How difficult is that going to be? Well, it's always good to learn from history. I mean, basically, I have learned from history is that we hardly ever learn from history. But we're going to try to do that today. Our guest today is Cedric DeLeon. Cedric, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Bert. He is author of the new book, The Origins of the Right to Work, Anti-Labor Democracy in 19th Century Chicago. Now, most of us who side with labor generally believe right to work came about after Franklin Roosevelt's pro-labor New Deal accomplishments in a Republican effort to roll back those accomplishments. But as this new book shows, and frankly, it was a surprise to me that right to work emerged as an integral part of a free market order after the legal abolition of slavery. I didn't know any of that stuff. This book offers a powerful reinterpretation of race, class, and party in the middle decades of the 19th century. And there's a lot that we can learn that's applicable today. Cedric DeLeon, the author, is Associate Professor of Sociology at Providence College. He's the author of Party and Society, Reconstructing a Sociology of Democratic Party Politics, and he's co-editor of Building Blocks, B-L-O-C-S, How Parties Organize Society. Before becoming a professor, he was by turns an organizer, a local union president, a rank-and-file activist in the U.S. labor movement. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Cedric. Let's start by a definition, right to work. Twenty-six states now have right-to-work laws. Briefly, what are right-to-work laws? Right-to-work laws basically uh, permit uh, a worker in a union workplace to pay or not pay dues. Um, 
when uh, there is not a right-to-work law uh, in place in a given state, uh, workers in a union uh, in a union shop have to pay either union dues if they agree to be members of the union, or they have to pay a smaller service fee because all um, uh, workers, whether they're uh, members of the union or not, get the benefits of the you know increased wages, uh, benefits, and working conditions that unions are able to negotiate. Uh, so when you've got a right to work law in place, you can actually you don't have to pay that that fee um, even if you don't want to be um, the, a member of the union. So you could be sort of a a free rider, shall we say, that uh, other people do the work, pay the dues, and and you get the benefits of that. Yes, that's right. Uh, right to work laws basically encourage uh, free riding. Right, other people are going to pay the dues and. Uh, make sure that the lights get turned on and that the staff are paid and and uh, and so forth. I'm going to hang back here, uh, not sign any public petitions, not walk a picket line, not pay any dues, and get uh, the benefits um, uh, of collective bargaining. That's basically what right to work laws uh, uh, encourage uh, workers to do. Uh, and and in doing that, basically. Um, employers and conservative politicians are able to undercut the power uh, of the working class by basically depriving unions of of, uh, of resources. Hmm. Yeah, the fight goes on, and it's interesting how it started well before I would have figured, actually, in the uh, mid-19th century, and we'll talk about that. But no doubt when you wrote this book, I imagine you were like me. I expected either Bernie Sanders or, more likely, Hillary Clinton to have been easily elected to the presidency by now. Uh, Right to work would have been pretty much dead in the water under administrations sympathetic with the rights of labor. But with uh, Trump in the White House and Republicans having control of most state houses, I imagine your book may have even more relevance now than when you were writing it. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's possibly true. You know, um, I think there are some opportunities for organized labor to make uh, the Trump administration put their money where their mouth is, right? Uh, and we can get to that uh, in a moment. But, you know, as as many progressives know, there was a case that came up to the Supreme Court recently uh, called Fredericks uh, versus the California Teachers Association. And that um, that lawsuit threatened to make the entire public sector across the United States right to work. But um, then uh, Antonin Scalia died, and uh, basically what happened was that there was a deadlock court. That, uh, the court tied four to four, which meant that the lower court's decision was upheld, and the lower court had sided with organized labor and said that public sector employees had to pay union dues if they wanted to be members or the smaller service fee if if they wanted to be non-members but still were part of the union workplace. So I think what's going to happen now is there are probably going to be copycat cases, right? Uh, procedurally, Fredericks can't come back up to the Supreme Court again, but some other teacher or firefighter or other you know public sector worker uh, might be uh, influenced by the National Right to Work Coalition to mount another case. If that were to come up to the Supreme Court and Mr. Trump um, by that point had elected um, a, an anti-labor conservative justice, mm. it's possible that um, the public sector uh, in the next few years might become uh, right to work all across the land. 
so uh, unfortunately, this this means that I'll be on a lot of radio shows yeah. like yours, uh, but the result is uh, is pretty grim for working people. Oh, yeah, it really is grim in so many different ways. Now, th- this phrase, right to work, I've often, I mean, w- we here uh, in this area talk about right to work for less. Yeah. How, how, did that, how did that phrase come about? What's the origin of the phrase right to work? It's so nice sounding. Yeah. Well, it, it comes from um, from the 1860s in Chicago. Uh, and basically, um, it, it originates actually in political rhetoric. It's not, it's not rhetoric that originates from, you know, labor disputes between, between bosses and workers. So what happened is this, um, you know, as we know, collective bargaining agreements cover the wages, working conditions, um, uh, and hours of all the workers in a workplace, okay? Politicians, after the Civil War, began saying that these agreements um, prevented an individual worker from cutting a side deal on hours or wages or what have you with an individual employer, and in so doing, enslaved free white men, okay, and prohibited the right to work, right? Mm. So right so right to work was actually a justification used by anti-labor politicians to justify using state violence to crush the labor movement as it was emerging in the 1860s. So if I got that right, and it, it's sort of a stretch to me that... Right to work, the phrase comes from the projection, the uh, trying to paint a picture that uh, union people uh, or people who whoever worked in a factory where there was a union were enslaved to that. That's right. Yes. I mean, that was the logic of the rhetoric, right? A lot of this is about political language, right? As you say, right to work sounds actually quite appealing. Well, I would sure. like the right to work. I'm an, if I'm unemployed right now, I would like the right to work. Right. It sounds great. Um, but, but you know, um, that's taking it completely out of context, right? So the okay. way that it was initially mobilized by politicians in order to gain support, right, for these bills was um, to say that unions basically undermined individual workers' right to work for whatever wage, whatever set of hours they wanted to work, right? right? Because unions said, no, 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 everybody's got to, you know, get paid a certain wage or at least be above a certain floor. Mm -hmm. Nobody can work more than eight hours, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so forth, right? Um, And and politicians saw that as basically a criminal conspiracy to, to deprive workers of their individual rights, and also deprive employers of their individual right to contract services with their employees. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I can see how, I mean, they, they still use that appeal now and trying to, you know, be free of the power of oppressive unions. Somehow that picture has uh, gotten out there since, since the 50s, really. I, I do find it fascinating how politicians and maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, how politicians used the North's win in the Civil War to delegitimize collective bargaining. I never would have put those two things together. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, because, look, you know, it's not that right to work was bad all around, right? Because when applied to the slave South, 
right to work actually works very well for for formerly enslaved uh, uh, Americans, sure. right? Yeah, so, you know, uh, um, the the uh, the black codes in the South basically allowed former masters, right, to re-enslave formerly freed slaves, right? Um, and the Republicans basically stepped in and passed the Reconstruction laws and said, no, okay, in this country, all people have the right to work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you know, you can't re-enslave this person. You actually have to engage in a one-on-one negotiation uh-huh. with, you, with your former slave, and you have to pay them, and you both have to agree to the terms before that former slave works uh, for the master. So in many ways, right, across the South, this doctrine of free contract and right to work prevented the re-enslavement of black people in this country. Yeah. But in the North, okay, the politicians did something else, right? They used right to work to to undermine the collective rights um, and organizing efforts uh, of workers, to, to outlaw boycotts, strikes, unions, or any kind of collective action, right? So they're sort of speaking out of two sides of their mouth there, right? Um, so that, that's, that, that, you know, that, that's the sort of paradox of, uh, of right to work in this period. Wow, fascinating stuff that I certainly didn't know. The book is called The Origins of Right to Work, Anti-Labor Democracy in 19th Century Chicago. Our guest today is the author Cedric DeLeon. And uh, I wanted to ask how the liberation of basically white male workers from wage labor was written into the little-known third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. And what's behind this ideology? How did this unusual spin on freedom come to energize union organizing? Right. Now, that's that's a great question, Bert. Uh, so the third verse of the, of, of the Star-Spangled Banner uh, says, No rescue can save the hireling or slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. For the star-spangled banner and triumph doth wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And so, no rescue can can save the hireling or slave. And yeah, what does that mean? What what Francis Scott Key is trying to get across there, right, is that slaves and wage workers—that is, people who worked for other people, right, for a living. Both of those folks had more or less equal status, okay, in the antebellum that is pre-Civil War United States. And the reason why is that both types of work were stigmatized because they entailed subservience to a master class, whether that be an industrialist class or, uh, or the planter class. Right, mm-hmm. you were not an economically independent person, right. okay, yeah. like a farmer was, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. an artisan that owned his or her own shop was, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. and that is what workers, nineteenth-century workers, wanted, right? And both the Democrats and the Republicans promised wage workers, and also, by the way, uh, tenant farmers—you know, folks who didn't own their own mm-hmm. farms—they promised poor white folks, free or cheap land out west, where they could 
uh, be their own bosses effectively. That's using our own language, right? Being the sort of captains of their own domain. Okay? That's what they were promised. But then after the war, it was clear that nobody was going to fulfill their promise, right? Instead, all of that land got eaten up by, uh, by railroads uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and industrialists, right? Yes. And even as these 19th century politicians gave all of that land away to uh, railroad magnates, mm-hmm. they turned around and they told the workers, well, actually, you know, we changed our tune on, on the notion that, that the only way to be free is to be, you know, your, your own boss. Actually, you're free already. All of you wage workers who are working 12 hours a day in a sweatshop or a factory, guess what? You're already free because you get to bargain one-on-one with your employers uh, over the terms and conditions of your work in that sweatshop um, or factory. And you gotta, you just got to sort of imagine yourself in the shoes of these, <laughs> these workers, you know, after the Civil War, who, by the way, are now war veterans, right? They just spent, you know, they, they had lost so many of their loved ones and, you know, put their own lives in peril for the promise that they might be free men one day and escape wage slavery in sweatshops and factories. And now these politicians say, well, actually, number one, there's no land. And number two, you're working in a factory and you're already free. (laughs) So they were, I mean, these folks were understandably scandalized. I mean, they were angry people. And so the only way that they could, basically what they did after the Civil War was they tried to figure out ways to carve out a little bit of freedom for themselves Mm. on the job right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're industrial wage slaves. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about this thing? And one of the signature demand, I think this is very telling, the signature the de- demand of the labor movement after the Civil War was the eight-hour day. And the reason why was they wanted to work for eight hours, they wanted to rest for eight hours, and they wanted eight hours for whatever they wanted. They didn't want to work 12 to 16-hour days go home, go to sleep, and wake up the next day. That right. felt like them, to, like slavery. Yeah. So, so they basically wanted the eight-hour day so they could feel like free men, so they could, like, you know, go to the bar with their buddies on a Saturday, okay? And, you know, just enjoy life with their families, stuff like that. So I, I think that's the connection there, right? The connection between the demands of the labor movement and this whole notion right, of, of the equal status of slaves and wage, uh, wage workers, um, is that um, it, it, the, the link that links those two things are the broken promises of politicians to the working class in this country. Broken, politi- broken promises by politicians? I'm shocked. Shocked. I, <laughs> I know. Hard to believe, but there it is. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> you met, and Democrats and Republicans, and by the way, it's interesting, you know, back in the like 1860s, etc., they, they, they were like flipped. It was the Democrats who were the Southern racist, you know, slaveholding uh, supporters. And the Republicans of Abraham Lincoln wanted to turn that around. It's certain switched back, I think, rather substantially since then. But this whole w- westward expansion, you know, was quite a, a promise that, you know, there's freedom. And I think yes. everybody would agree that in, unless you have some degree of economic freedom, you got no freedom at all. And, That's right. But 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 out west, the idea that you can have your own land, and how was this uh, connected by you know some some white supremacist notions? They, I mean, the white men felt betrayed a little bit. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the white supremacy comes uh, um, comes in 
because of the way that politicians promised the land to uh, landless um, agricultural and industrial workers. Right. Okay? Yeah. Because they didn't just say, everybody gets land. Right. Right? They said specifically that white men, free white men were entitled to a portion of the earth. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. This was this this was this was land policy as social policy. Okay? You might even argue that land policy was the first real entitlement policy. Yeah of the United States government, right? Oh, okay, so instead of giving out unemployment insurance, okay, yeah. or uh, free health care to indigent folks, what they did was say, okay, I know you're poor, I know this is back-breaking poverty that you're experiencing in Chicago and Philadelphia, stick with me, I'll set you free, we'll get a bill through the Senate and House of Representatives that makes huge swaths of land free and open uh, uh, to the to the public, and we're going to do this because white men deserve this. This is the birthright of of white men. And of course, as I say that, right, you can already hear who's being excluded, right? Yeah, right. Women, <laughs> uh, for one, oh, okay, and all people who are not white, right. okay. Uh, so that that that's why. Um, that that's the those are the sort of white supremacist underpinnings behind um, the drive uh, westward. Okay, Western lands were not meant for everybody. They certainly weren't meant for the Mexicans who they took the land from, right. or from the okay, or or from the Native Americans who they took the land from. Yes. These were these these were for white uh, colonial settlers. And I actually heard I don't know if this is actually true that that part of the idea you know leading up to the uh, war against Southern Secession was uh, you know a big discussion about excluding blacks from Western settlements uh, and, and excluding slavery. It wasn't. What I had heard was it wasn't so much you know keeping slavery out of there, but keeping the land for the white people, for the white that's men. That's right. <laughs> you got it. No, no, that that that's right. So look, there there was a small minority of the electorate that was abolitionist. Very small. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't want to give the impression here that there were folks who there was nobody against slavery. Obviously, that's not true. Right. Okay. There are plenty of famous oh, yeah. abolitionists in American history. But that was a very tiny progressive faction, okay, within, uh, within the Republican Party and within the electorate. For the most part, the mainstream political establishment within the Republican Party and their base among German um, and native-born workers and middle-class folks, these folks fought in the Civil War and supported um, the Lincoln administration. Uh, because they believed that if slavery could expand westward, okay, and by westward I mean you know west of Minnesota and west of Texas here, yeah. if slavery if if slavery could extend westward, that would mean that these wealthy planters in the South would gobble up all the land, and there wouldn't be any land left for anybody else. Right? Uh -huh. Because, I mean, plantation slavery only succeeds financially if you had gigantic swaths of land. 
Mm-hmm. And if that's true, if you have these massive tracts of land that are being swallowed up by planters, then there's not going to be enough to go around for, for you know, just a, a, a regular, you know, stiff from, <laughs> a white person, you know, yeah. from, from Newark or someplace like that. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Right. And so, so they opposed the extension of slavery, okay, so that they could get their hands on the land. They didn't expose the ex- they didn't oppose the extension of slavery because they had something against right. slavery itself. Oh my right? goodness! Uh huh. Oh my goodness! That's, it's 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 you know the the problem here, right? Is that it deromanticizes the Civil War. But when you stop and think about it, right, and and listen to the rhetoric, read the rhetoric, you say, you know. This makes a lot of sense. This is really what American politics looks like. And if you, you know, I mean, I, I think you can fast forward today and look at the Trump administration or the incoming Trump administration. How did they win? They promised the white working class the sun and the moon, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm, I, you know, I, I would go so far as to say that that's precisely, that was the game back then as well. Wow. Huh, interesting. It's, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's all about <laughs> money, you know, and the power of the railroads was huge. Uh, yeah. You know, and they just, like the big corporations of today, they basically owned uh, the, the federal government. And we mm-hmm. could talk about the, uh, the de-romanticizing the war against Southern independence, but that's perhaps for another day. We're talking yeah. about the origins of right to work. And I got to ask about, you know, the subtitle of your book is Anti-Labor Democracy in the 19th Century Chicago. Chicago is, of course, the site of the famous Haymarket actions of 1886 through 87. Tell us about that, please. And, and, and why else Chicago is a hotspot for students of labor history? Well, Chicago was really the vanguard of the labor movement in the 19th century. There was really nobody, no other uh, working class movement in another city that really came close um, as the 19th century drew on. Um, and, um, you know, part of the reason was, uh, was the leadership of a man named Andrew Cameron, who had been president of the, um, of the Printers Union uh, in Chicago and was the editor of a newspaper called The Working Man's Advocate. Uh, which was actually the newspaper of just the local General Trades Assembly in Chicago. But people read that newspaper all across the country. Okay, So whatever Andrew Cameron wrote, the working class in other parts of the country read. Um, and the, the other piece, too, was that Chicago um, was really the nucleus of... Um, of 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 radical socialist politics, right, right. Um, you know, people think about New York, um, uh, you know, fulfilling that role. By the 1880s, that's really not true anymore. Okay, um, Chicago surpasses New York and other eastern cities in that in that regard. The first strike for the eight-hour day in the United States and also the world. Okay, wow. was on May second, eighteen sixty-seven, in Chicago. Hmm. So, for all of these reasons, right, Chicago is really the vanguard of labor unrest after um, after the the Civil War, and the Haymarket Affair just symbolizes uh, that. Okay, um, 
for 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 those who are a little bit hazy on yes, on, on hay market, yes. uh, basically what what happened is that um, uh, on May uh, May third there was a strike over at the McCormick Reaper Works, right? Um, uh, and uh, two workers were killed by police, and then um, August Spies who was an anarchist in Chicago, organized a rally the next day against police violence. This is the ironic thing about this whole thing, okay? This was a rally against police violence the next day because of the killing of two workers on a picket line. All right. So so this rally is taking place on May 4th, 1886, and then 176 cops basically descend upon the rally to break it up. And then somebody to this day, who, right. who to this day is unknown, basically right. threw a dynamite bomb and killed one police officer instantly uh, and injured many others. And what ended up happening, the real massacre was that the police who were completely disoriented in this haze of smoke right, and fumes mm-hmm. then started shooting indiscriminately in the crowd and killing their own fellow officers uh, as well um, as workers. So there were many pe- many casualties in this in this uh, in this affair. Um, uh, so that that that's basically what happens. And then and then um, uh, and then uh, the the you know local um, state and federal um, uh, law enforcement are then basically brought in. And what they do is they they basically execute the the first ever red scare in uh, American history. Mm. And if you fast forward one year later, November 1887, four of the anarchists who who had been involved in organizing this rally against police violence were then hanged on the flimsiest um, of evidence. Mm -hmm. Right? So, you know, uh, I I, I think... so. that that's how Haymarket sort of like you know fits in with 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 within this kind of broad trajectory of Chicago being the leader of the of the national labor movement. Hmm. And yeah, Chicago at the time was a big big crossroads. It was you know the, there was the uh, Eastern markets buying the uh, yes. the meat and things like that there from the slaughterhouses and the, the farmers bringing their stuff in, and it was Chicago was like the big center of that uh, for sure. And uh, I, I'm thinking of you. Uh, you reminded me of uh, people being uh, convicted and and uh, executed on the flimsiest of evidence. Uh, reminds me of the, those anarchists Sacco and Vanzetti. <laughs> so the tradition yeah. continued. My, yes. my my understanding was, and I I don't know that much about this era, but in the late 19th and early 20th century, I believe socialism and communism were just a part of organized labor, and that particular uh, uh, period. How, how accurate is that, and how able was the other side to play up fears of, of the Red Scare, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Well, they were, they were very easy. They, it was very easy for them to play up the, uh, the, the, the fears uh, of, uh, of, of Reds um, in, in their ranks, and the Haymarket Affair simply gave them uh, more ammunition sure. to basically snuff out um, uh, the socialist uh, and and communist movements um, in, in the in the United States. Of course, they didn't succeed, but they, right. uh, you know, uh, they certainly used it to um, to uh, to great effect. But it, it it is true 
that socialists uh, and communists and also just kind of like regular bread-and-butter trade unionists Mm -hmm. work together um, in this period. Um, Increasingly, they drift apart, particularly after the Haymarket Affair, where the mainstream labor movement tries to distance itself as far as possible uh, from from the far left, um, so that you know, you know, so that they could escape um, right. violent repression and also find a way to um, to get pro labor legislation passed um, in state in state sure. and in the national legislature. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, in in eighteen in the right after uh, the Civil War, in the, the the late 1860s. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Chicago labor movement was really kind of hodgepodge of all of these different political elements organizing as one mm. um, to get the eight-hour day. Uh-huh. Uh Right. So, so it was a it was an in, it was an interethnic um, uh, and um, and multifactional uh, labor movement uh, at that time. Uh, and with with it begins to break apart somewhat in the 1870s, but there's still some coherence. They're still striking together. They're still mobilizing together. But then when the Haymarket uh, massacre uh, takes place, the AFL goes one way, and then um, and and then you know the, the anarchist, socialist, and communist left goes goes another way. Uh. What about the the Knights of Labor? They were an early uh, union organizing, and did they work with uh, the other uh, labor organizations? Or, you know, oftentimes we see various different groups, particularly on the left, competing with one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was was that happening at the time too in the in the Chicago labor organizing? Yes, that that was happening, and um, uh, you know the many of the folks who were involved in Haymarket were not only uh, anarchists, but also knights. Um, right. You know, the, the Knights of Labor uh, was um, uh, was distinguished for being a biracial ah. uh, labor movement That's really that right. called for the abolition of wage slavery, right? So mm. bringing back the earlier conversation we had sure. about the Star-Spangled Banner, right? They continued to advocate uh, for the abolition of the wage system because they believed it was uh, a system um, of slavery. So, you know, um, but even the Knights, uh, you know, distanced themselves uh, from, uh, from the anarchists yeah. after, um, a- after Haymarket. Um, but, you know, the right basically blamed the Knights anyway. And, mm. and there had, they, had, they did have some basis for that, because many of the radicals in the Chicago labor movement were both Knights and anarchists. Albert Parsons, for example, was a knight, okay, mm-hmm. uh, and an anarchist, and the editor of The Alarm, which was the anarchist paper, right? So after this, I mean, there's just, you know, a black mark, right, on, uh, uh-huh. on the Knights of Labor. So they have um, and as my themselves. colleague Kim Voss, who wrote, a, who wrote a foundational book on this period um, uh, in, in 1993, writes, you know, the, the, the knights never really recover after Haymarket. And I would think, you know, and, and the bar- the broad context of all this is, you know, economic power. You know, there's that idea, that the mythical idea of rugged individualism, which is, you know, very popular belief in the United States. But, but you know, if it's the individual negotiating on his or her own, they have less power because, you know, the money is on one side, big money, big power on one side. 
if people are disorganized and, can't, right. and don't all stick together, we know what happens there. Yeah, it's not, yes. Go ahead. Yes, no, no, that, that's right. And, and that's what right to work is about. Yes. Right to work is restoring this, you know, mythical idea that the best possible circumstance is a, an individual worker bargaining for her or his wages in a one-on-one negotiation with an individual employer. Okay, but of course, what that leaves out is that the employer has so much more power, you know, than some, you know, some minimum wage, minimum wage worker who's probably an immigrant and doesn't speak English that well and right. doesn't have a ton of resources, doesn't have a lot of political, you know, power behind her or him. You know, the employer typically in these mythical one-on-one negotiations basically says to the worker, "This is how much you want to get paid." And maybe, do you want the job? And you say yes, and then you work under those conditions, and that's it, yeah. right? Without a union, you can't make the employer do anything. The employer is not bound to give you squat, right? Uh, and so, the, you know, the, the whole principle of, of, of unions is this, that a worker is only as powerful as the collective of workers that she or he is a part of. If there's no collective, you just can't bring the kind of power to bear to push the employer to pay you a living wage because the employer will try to pay you as little as possible, given the chance. absolutely. I mean, that that race to the bottom has been going on, I think, throughout uh, the history of capitalism itself. You know, not everybody right. does it, but, you know, slavery is the ideal because you, you don't have to pay them at all. And there's no yeah, work. That's right. It's just, it, yeah, it's just, it's just not good for, it's not, it's not a good marketing thing for, <laughs> for business, right? Well, they, they can't do that. Um, so instead what they do is they outsource these jobs yes. to, um, uh-huh. you know, overseas and pay for folks 42 cents an hour and then argue that this is actually quite a lot of money for them. Right. Um, so, so we're actually doing them um, a, a benefit, where in fact forty-two cents an hour in this country is basically slavery, right? Yes, it is, and that's you know through NAFTA and all these different uh, uh, trade agreements that uh, were in play in the election. I'll be curious to see if Donald Trump actually gets to be president. I'm still hoping that some miracle happened and he doesn't okay. take it. But, you know, yeah. in, in terms of, you know, and destroying union power, I mean, can't the other side, you know, the groups like ALEC or whatever, the right-wing groups that are that are pushing for right to work, can't they say, oh, unions are still effective if not all employees are forced to join? What do they say about that? And what's the reality on that? Well, the 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 reality is that look you know and why should people be forced to join unions that that's their argument right, that i've heard right yeah you know so uh, the issue is that you know we're we're talking about we're talking about workers right we're not talking about the upper middle class you know or affluent Right. Uh, stratum of society. We're talking about workers. They don't have a lot of money. Okay, right. Right. they shop at Walmart because that's the cheapest thing around. Right? right? Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of money, not a lot of resources, not a lot of savings. And so, in a right-to-work situation, when politicians say, "Hey, guess what? You don't have to pay, you know, point nine percent of your salary anymore to the union." Right. 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 These workers are scraping by. Yes. Okay, 
to put food on the table and they say, you know, I love the union, but I just can't afford it. I need, you know, I need every single penny I can scrounge. Yep. And so, you know, and, and so I think it's understandable, you know, that, that, uh, that a worker w- would, would choose not to, to pay the dues. And, you know, so what we know about this, for example, is uh, in Wisconsin, it's a perfect case, right? Okay. Uh, just went uh, right to work uh, last year, fully right to work last year. Right. And a few years before that, the public sector went right to work. Well, the, 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 the percentage of, uh, of people uh, in unions in Wisconsin dropped, okay, from roughly 13%. To below nine percent um, in this very short four-year period, that's a loss of ninety-three thousand union members out of a total membership of three, or just over three hundred thousand. Okay, in the wow. span of three mm. to four years, Jeez. I mean that is completely disastrous, right? Uh, and so, so you know, the the other side says. Oh yeah, you know, we still believe in collective bargaining. This is not going to affect workers' power at the table. Well, of course it is. You know, if somebody took a third of your salary and your resources away, that would sort of hamstring you a little bit, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's that's that that's 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 pretty rough. And you know, I would go so far as to say that one of the reasons that um that uh, Mr. S- Mr. Trump was able to carry Wisconsin was because of the dramatic weakening of organized labor um, in that state. Because once you're no longer part of the union, you know you sort of become this kind of free-floating individual, right. right? You're not anchored in a kind of organizational politics that says, "Hey, listen, you know, uh, a worker, you know, voting for for Donald Trump is like a is like a chicken voting for Colonel Sanders." You don't have that tape running in your head anymore. You don't have right. people reaching out to you and doing house visits and saying, hey, we got to be for Hillary here, right? You just don't have that anymore. It's over, right? You're like in your home. You're not paying dues. You're disconnected from the organization. Um, so so I, think, um, I think that that has huge implications, not only for union membership and sort of like the financial resources of the union, mm-hmm. but also for the political power um, of organized labor to to elevate the candidate to the presidency that they want to be president. And now what about all these people? I mean, let, let's face it, you know, uh, in the 50s, I think union membership was pretty high, the 1950s. Uh, yes. And now it's, it's my sense is most employees, most workers are not members of unions. Why should they care about right to work now? And, you know, what, what can they learn from, from the history that uh, you've written about? Well, I think that... Um, you know the 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 thought that comes to mind here is uh, survey data that is pretty consistent uh, from year to year and has been so now for a generation, which says that given the choice between working in a union workplace and a non-union workplace, American workers, a majority of Amer- of American workers, say that they would rather work in a union workplace. Okay. Still. So just because a small percentage of American workers are in unions doesn't necessarily mean that American workers don't want unions. As a matter of fact, it's been proven over and over again, year after year, that a majority of American workers do want to be unionized. 
okay? Mm-hmm. The difference between, you know, the desire to be in a union and the actual union membership is the weakness of American labor law, which privileges and empowers uh, the employer, okay? Yes. So I'll give you an, an example. It's the most notorious example, right? It sounds great that uh, in order for our workplace to unionize, employ- employees have to vote in a union election, mm-hmm. right? Sure. 50% plus one, and the union and, and the, and, and, and the place is unionized, and the employer is required by law to sit down and bargain a contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That sounds great on paper, but the actual practice of it is this. The workers sign each other up on union cards, Okay, and in this country, in order to, in order to be able to trigger an election, you have to sign up at least thirty percent of the workplace on union cards. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the workers have signed up fifty-five percent of the workplace on union cards. So, majority of people have said, "Yes, I want the union," so much so that I am willing to actually sign a membership card right now, which says very clearly on it. I want this union to be my collective bargaining agent. And you sign on the dotted line and you date that sucker. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right? Here's the thing. Then what has to happen is that the workers have to go to the National Labor Relations Board and file for the election. And then you go back and forth with the employer over the size of the unit, who gets to be in the union and not be in the union. And after all of that legal mumbo-jumbo is done... Mm. You set the date for the election and the average length of time between the hearing and the actual election is eight weeks. That is eight weeks in which the boss gets to hammer the workers in the workplace, intimidate the bejesus out of them, fire them in, in, in some cases, possibly bribe them and say, listen, you know, we've seen the light, we're so sorry. What we are going to do is fire that supervisor that everybody hates. Or guess what? We're going to increase the wages in this workplace by 50 cents an hour, right? There's all kinds of carrots and sticks dynamics that happen in those eight weeks. And, you know, in many cases, even though a majority of workers are signed up on cards, the workers end up losing the election because the boss has the upper hand inside the workplace while everybody's waiting around to have this election. You see what I mean? So, that's, so, so you know, I mean, the, 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 the issue here is not whether workers want to be in a union. The issue here is that the law is skewed against workers, okay? Um, and so workers should care that right to work is destroying unions because a majority of American workers do want unions. And if right to work gets basically shoved through in every state in this union becomes a federal law, mm. it's going to be pretty darn difficult, okay, for unions to organize and represent American workers again. It's not impossible. No. There are cases in which folks work under right to work laws and are able to actually mobilize strong unions. But it it radically handicaps unions right. from adequately representing workers. Certainly gives a lot of power to one side as against the other side in so many That's ways. Right. And and I wonder, you know, just looking at the history and now where the the political power is that that made 
the, what, what you just described become reality. I'm guessing the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is pretty right-wing, ALEC, American Legislative uh, Exchange mm-hmm. Committee, groups like that. W- what is their their power now after the election of uh, 2016, do you think? It is, it is um, radically uh, increased. Yeah. Um, their their power has expanded. And what about the Democrats? Are they fighting back? Are they digging into this? I mean, it does seem to me that uh, one of the reasons, this is just my thinking here, that, that Hillary lost is that beginning in the 1990s under her husband, Bill Clinton, that mm-hmm. and the Democratic Leadership Council, boo hiss, uh, that the mm-hmm. DNC turned its back on our traditional base, the working class, and instead turned their energy to serving Wall Street, where they were able to get large amounts of campaign cash much quicker and easier. Can the Democratic Party continue to take for granted, as they always have throughout my fairly long lifetime, take for granted the support of labor? Will labor be forever, as you call it, a captured constituency? Tell us about labor and, and the Democratic Party right now being, you know, I don't think that can be taken for granted anymore. Look what happened when they did. Yeah. Well, you know, I think so. I think it's important to distinguish between state and local Democratic parties and the National Democratic Party. I think you can point to instances such as the Wisconsin Democratic Party, where those folks basically stuck by organized labor, you know, through the fight with Scott Walker, right? I don't want to cast aspersions on those guys. I mean, they they were, they're heroes. But look, the National Democratic Party is a different animal altogether, as you and I both know. Right. Oh yeah. Within the National Democratic Party, organized labor is a captured constituency, and what I mean by that is this: they are ignored by their home party, the Democratic Party, and unhoped for by the opposition. They're ignored by the Democratic Party, and they have been ignored by the Democratic Party really since you know 1936, 1940. Okay, because because the other side is just not an option. That's right, sure. oh, yeah. and so they assume that organized labor has no place to go, right. and so the Democrats basically try to recruit other workers, or excuse me, other voters who they don't currently have. Mm. Okay, so they are ignored by their home party and unhoped for by the opposition. Meaning that the mainstream Republican Party, not Trump, right. but the mainstream Republican Party, has basically said, "Well, we're you know we're not going to get organized labor. We're not going to get any major endorsements. We might get the Fraternal Order of Police from time to time." But for the most part, the labor movement's not going to be with us, so we might as well crush them. <laughs> I mean, they're not going to endorse us. Let's use these right-to-work laws to basically destroy the last vestiges of America, of, of American workers' collective power, uh, while they're you know while they're down in the gutter, right? Um, and so, what happens here is that you have a working class in this country that is uh, ignored by the Democrats, and unhoped for by the mainstream Republican Party. And here comes Donald Trump, right? He says, the white working class in this country has been forgotten, and you will not be forgotten anymore. He says, you don't have a voice in Washington. I am your voice. He talks about trade deals. He talks about NAFTA. He talks about the global outsourcing of good union jobs overseas, okay? 
He, talks he was there. I don't, you know, he promised him the sun and the moon, and I don't think he's going to be able to deliver it in any case. He's a retrograde conservative boss, and it's never going to happen, right? Cause, <laughs> but, but, you know what I mean? He's got all these fancy press conferences keeping 1,000 workers at the, at the right. carrier plant here. You know, tens of millions of jobs have left this country, yes. right? Yes. Right? So, you know, but look. You got to give him credit, right? I mean, when I was a when I was a union organizer, I always gave the boss credit, you know, when they did something smart basically to undercut the the union campaign. This guy's smart. Yeah. Okay? He knows he's not going to be able to win the presidency without the support of working people. It's just not going to it's not possible for and Republicans to win the presidency unless you bamboozle the working class into supporting you. Yep. Right? Because we do the work in this country. <laughs> so, so so, but he did that. He sure and did. And the thing is, is that the Democrats didn't do that. Nope. You know, Bernie Sanders did. Yes. But Hillary Clinton's argument was that Donald Trump was an unacceptable commander-in-chief. That's not... I mean, <laughs> hardly motivating enough. That's hardly a political <laughs> vision. It's like, this guy is a crazy Yahoo, yeah. right? That, I mean, that, that's not really an argument, right? No. no. Uh, it's an argument, but it's not particularly It's strong. not compelling. It doesn't... It doesn't address the defectors, the potential defectors in the Democratic Party, which were these white working class uh, voters who voted for Trump. I just wonder how long it's going to take for them to realize that they were bamboozled. I mean, Donald Trump's record of employment. Yeah, it's it's, it's terrible. It's horrendous. It's it's disgraceful. So what can people learn from reading your book, uh, The Origi- Origins of Right to Work, Anti-Labor uh, Democracy in 19th Century Chicago, that might be applicable uh, and good to learn for the labor movement today? The main thing that I hope people take away you know, from this book, just you know, for contemporary practical purposes, yes. is, that, is that the labor movement needs to be politically independent. We need to basically decide amongst ourselves on a coherent agenda for a more just society, a coherent agenda for economic democracy, Hmm. and then tell the party system, anybody who is for this vision can get our endorsement, right? Instead of being split apart and divided by parties who are struggling for power, we instead start to execute our own agenda and say we will endorse anybody who is pro-labor down the line. And in doing that, we can move the party system to the left. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not arguing for an anti-institutional, you know, anti-party system uh, right. position here or strategy. Sure. I I'm not. saying we need to be involved with the party system because those people hold the reins of state power and policy making. Right? They're not irrelevant. They're important people. Right? But we need to run our own agenda and, 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 and bring them to our position instead of them playing with us and dividing us by trade, by race, by immigration status, and by gender. We have, we have played that game long enough. Right? And all it has gotten us is deindustrialization, yes. globalization, outsourcing, and deunionization, right? We need to do something else, right? Yeah. We've been playing this game for 75 years. It's time that we do something different. And I'll tell you one thing. There are four states that have recently turned back right to work in this country. Yeah. Ohio in 2011, 
Missouri in 2014, and Kentucky and Maine in 2015. Okay? And in each of those cases, there was a bipartisan opposition to the right to work. They pushed Republicans who represented working-class districts into putting their money where their mouth is. You represent this working-class district. You say you work, for, you, you work for, for workers in your district. Put your money where your mouth is and oppose this right-to-work bill. And guess what? They did. And then right-to-work was defeated. So that's the silver lining in all of this. If the labor movement is able to switch tack and put together a coherent agenda, right, and, and become politically independent, I think that organized labor can rise from the ashes again. This thing is not over. No. By the way, we have faced bosses far worse than Donald Trump. In my book, you know, there's all kinds of labor disputes in which workers are gunned down by police, militia, and the U.S. armed forces. Yes. Okay? Mr. Trump pales in comparison. <laughs> this guy is a weakling compared to the bosses that the labor movement in this country has faced down in the past. If we can beat them, we can beat him. True, and I've often said there's nothing like adversity to organize. It yes. does the job. It does the job. The book is called The Origins of Right to Work, Anti-Labor Democracy in 19th Century Chicago. Certainly, certainly lessons to be learned for today as we move forward. Cedric DeLeon, thanks so much for being with us and uh, doing your part to keep democracy alive. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. Appreciate it. Just laws cannot defeat us. 